This is Stinky Lulu Says, an irregular podcast about contemporary theater. I'm Brian Herrera, and I'm Stinky Lulu. I'm also a theater professor, and I see a lot of shows, and Stinky Lulu Says is where I have my say about what I see. And this episode marks the launch of Cycle 6 of the Stinky Lulu Says podcast, which also marks a return of sorts to the podcast's originary impulse. Um, what we'll have is an emphatically informal conversational auto-diary documenting my thoughts in response to the shows I see. Now, attentive listeners might recall that cycles two, three, and four of this podcast were um, pedagogical experiments offered in response to the era of remote instruction during 2021 and 2022. And then cycle five came along offering two experiments and casual conversational reviews about productions. One offered solo, the other offered collaboratively. And indeed, I had hoped that the collaborative roundtable approach might signal a new direction for the podcast, but um, <laughs> that didn't happen. And now I find myself Again, seeing a lot of shows and reaching to find some kind of mechanism to catch and to share my thoughts about what I see. Which brings me to today, which is another launch of another experimental cycle of the Stinky Lulu Says podcast, introducing what I hope will be a semi-regular audio diary, capturing some of my thoughts about the shows I see, perhaps with a dash of commentary about current trends and probably current crises in contemporary theater making. But I should note that my comments here are not reviews, at least not in the conventional sense but simply my reflective commentary on the works that shaped my experience of the past week or so. And each episode of this new cycle of episodes, which will arrive to your podcasting service whenever it arrives, each episode will be a spontaneous, mostly unedited, reflective conversation with myself about a recent theater production. Sometimes I'm hoping it will capture a conversation among lightly curated groups of friends and colleagues, but yeah, I suspect it'll mostly be me just talking to myself, which is something I'm pretty used to doing. So, and I'll be talking to myself with you perhaps as a listener, as I gather, as I collect, as I capture my thoughts about my recent theater going experiences. So with those caveats lodged, let's get to it. In this installment, in addition to a quick overview of what turned out to be a theater-going week full of haunting voices and horrifying histories, Stinky Lulu has some things to say about the recent production of Noah Diaz's You Will Get Sick, as directed by Sam Pinkleton at NYC's Roundabout Theater in the late fall of 2022. So, here we go. This week, I engaged four performances. Two were student workshop presentations, two were major professional productions by major not-for-profit theaters, one in New York City, one in the regions. And I'm just now realizing that each was a horror story in its way. Each wrangled with the particular experiences of being haunted, of hearing voices, of that palpable dread that comes when we're not entirely sure we want to see what we're being drawn to look at. Now, two of these shows were literal ghost stories. One reckoned with the horrors of the historical past and one another with the horrors of 
contemporary crises around debility and caregiving, especially in the chaos of our contemporary world. Uh, three of the shows dealt, uh, used music, and all four really reached toward um, questions of intimacy and theatricality. Um, now, I'll just what I'll do is uh, I'll now just sort of list the performances with some summary in the order I saw them. So, at the beginning of the week, I saw a very early workshop presentation, a developmental really reading, really of a piece called "Sex Variants," developed by uh, Steve Cawson and Jessica Mitrani of the investigative, investigative theater company, The Civilians. Um, and this was a collaborative venture undertaken in uh, as part of a class offered at Princeton University. And this, the presentation I saw was sort of the end of semester showcase presentation. Now, what Cawson and Mistrani did with this group of about a dozen Princeton undergrads from a variety of different disciplinary and performance backgrounds is they undertook what they call a theatrical interrogation of a historical book published in 1948, but drawing upon research done in the 1930s. The book was Dr. George C. Henry's 1948 text, Sex Variants, A Study of Homosexual Patterns, and the working title for the workshop presentation I saw was Sex Variants. And so this was a series of scenes, um, uh, theatrical engagements, uh, as well as songs, all of which were engaging this, uh, this theatrical interrogation with this scholarly text. The next show is a show I'll talk, I'll dedicate a good deal of today's podcast to talking about, which is You Will Get Sick, a new play written by uh, Noah Diaz and directed by Sam Pinkleton and presented in its world premiere by New York City's Roundabout Theater Company. I'll be talking about it at some length in a moment. And the third show of the week was a show called Mine, M-I-N-E which was a new solo storytelling musical written and performed by a Princeton undergraduate senior named Asher Muldoon, who also saw the world premiere of his original musical Butcher Boy presented Irish rap earlier this year. Now, mine is a solo musical presented in a mix of storytelling and song uh, by Asher Muldoon, and it tells the story of a young venture capitalist who buys the deed to a ne neglected California ghost town, thinking he'll flip it easily into a destination spot for influencers, only to discover, as such things tend to happen, only to discover that this old mining town is steeped in gruesome histories, and each with the promise of gold at their heart, and each of which sort of beckons to the story mines young protagonist, in fact, inviting him to uh, explore the mine. And so this was presented as part of the production season of Princeton University's program in theater and music theater, which is where I work and where, uh, where I'm just completing my term as interim director in the program in theater. And um, finally, the show I saw uh, this weekend, just last night, was Lauren Keating's adventurous new adaptation of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, presented in the 43-year tradition at McCarter, um, uh, McCarter Theater in Princeton, New Jersey. And this is a brand new adaptation. Uh, and uh, I'll speak, I'll talk about it um, in, in just a moment. <clears throat> but all of these shows, uh, in their very different ways, I'm realizing, used mechanisms of theater to stoke uh, often uneasy uncertainties about whose voice it is whispering in our mind's ear, whose voice are we hearing, and perhaps most essentially, whose voice do we listen to, especially in times of crisis. Um, I might note that I, all, as an aside, I might note that I was also slated to 
I was also supposed to have seen the recently notorious Bruce Norris play Downstate uh, as directed by Pam McKinnon at New York City's Playwrights Horizons, but my confusion about the performance's start time meant I arrived to the theater about 10 minutes after curtain time. And well, for me, the idea of missing the first five to seven minutes of any production just goes against my spectatorial grain, and so I opted out took the risk uh, of just not seeing the show, hoping I would have a chance to see it again. I don't know that I will, but as I'm thinking about it now, I realize I wonder how Downstate might have fit into my reflections this week on the hauntings and the horrors and the histories and the, the in some ways, the abiding dreads uh, that underscore all of the shows I saw this week. But now um, I'm going to talk a little bit about... Um, Asher Muldoon's inspiration for mine before I talk also briefly about a chorus, li- a chorus line, oops, a Christmas carol, uh, and then uh, pivoting into a more extended discussion of Will You Get Sick? So one of the things that I was, I'm very interested about the work of Asher Muldoon, Asher Muldoon is a Princeton senior graduating this year, but is a very sort of fairly sophisticated theater maker, especially in terms of the kind of work he wants to make. And one of the inspiring, one of the inspiring motives for this piece was the question of why is it so hard to, um, create legitimate scares in the theater, especially legitimate scares in the theater when music is involved. And so it was really asking this question of, can we do horror on stage? And so as he developed this piece, and as I listened to this piece being presented the other day, uh, it was really striking to me to see like the choices that Muldoon made in terms of really trying to tune into how to bring some of the genre pleasures of horror and to bring them to the pleasures of the intimacy in the space of charismatic performance on a stage. And this is a tension that I think this piece, as it continues to develop, I think is going to have a lot of potential to grow into, especially given that there is something deeply terrifying and deeply suspenseful and deeply fascinating about the story that mine tells, especially the story as it conjoins this idea of the history and the horrors and the history of sort of venture capitalism, for lack of a better word, word as it sort of punctuates the American landscape. But then also this question of how, what are we drawn to when we're drawn to sort of pursuing our dreams? And what is the promise at the center of that? And are we, um, you know, are we doomed? And that is all, I think that existential question that underwrites so much of horror is really baked into the premise of mine. And I'll be interested to see where this very talented uh, rising theater maker takes this work. I'm also very interested to see uh, Lauren Keating, a director, uh, come into sort of, in some ways, uh, McCarter Theatre has been presenting some version of A Christmas Carol for 43 years, even during the pandemic, where they weren't able to invite audiences to join them in their in their theaters to, for to the annual tradition. They found ways of connecting to their audiences. So the tradition of A Christmas Carol, as presented by McCarter, has has had an ongoing evolution and has been part of each successive artistic director's sort of life in that company and also the way that theater sort of lives in the region, in the central New Jersey region where Princeton is located. And so it was fascinating to be part of the first uh, staging of the new version of A Christmas Carol. McCarter does offer reboots and revisions of Christmas Carol periodically. I've only been in Princeton 10 years, and this is the third revision I've encountered. But this one was actually quite striking in certain ways, mostly because it was very spare and it was very, very, um, 
very much took a lot of the conventions. The story was the story we recognized. Much of the language in the story was directly from the Dickens. And yet there was also an element of it felt very relevant to 2022 in that it wasn't so much about the 19th century notion of uh, virtue and villainy, um, which a lot of, I think, canonical versions of, of the story sort of anchor in is like, where is virtue and where is villainy? And this one really went into sort of the question of I don't know, trauma and healing and community and really opened up a different anchor into what is the source of this. And it was all totally justified by the text, but it was fascinating. And really, I would say the reason I've chosen to make sure I talked about it is I really want to say that, first off, the adaptation is an interesting one. And I hope it I hope it ultimately gets published or something so it might be available to other communities. But then also I wanted to note that one of the most compelling choices was the approach to casting that Keating's production took in that it was a sort of conventionally multicultural in a lot of ways, but also a little bit like it also in ways that very much connected to and reflected in this sort of the ethnic diversity of the of the greater uh, central New Jersey region. There were some particular casting choices that I thought were vivid, but the choice I want to point to is the choice to cast the actor D. Pelletier, uh, who uses she, her pronouns um, in the role of Scrooge, Ebenezer Scrooge, which was played as a simply male character. And so there was no uh, sort of high concept to it. It was simply a, a, a female identifying actor playing this, this, uh, this man, this old cranky man, and that the different iterations of Ebenezer as a boy and as a young man were also played by a mix of, 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 actors with with different pronouns and so there was a way in which the character was a character that was separate from the actual body of the performer but this particular Badi Pelletier's skill in the performance also did something that I think a lot of Christmas carols don't do which is really create the emotional interiority the sense of pain and the sense of arc as being a constant thread and it was a joyfully funny uh funny Scrooge, but it was also a Scrooge that you got a sense of over the course of the evening. It wasn't an epiphanic transition. It was a kind of a growing sense of like, oh no, I've really messed up. Can I make this right? That begins almost at the beginning of the visitations by the spirits. So it's, um, it was a quite striking production. I think it'll be quite successful, Mark Carter. And it wasn't one I was necessarily raring to go see, but by when when act the act break came along, and I thought like I could stay or I could go. The reason I cha- I stayed was because I was interested and I wanted to take a ride with the Pelletier's uh, Scrooge. And so that I think is quite a testament to the heart and spirit and the uh, the distinctiveness of this particular production. But. Um, what I do want to talk about mostly today is um, the production of Noah Diaz's You Will Get Sick, as directed by Sam Pinkleton, presented at Roundabout in its world premiere. Now, this play, which you may have heard about, possibly because Linda Lavin, who for people, Gen Xers like myself, is iconic as Alice in the TV show Alice, but has also had a longstanding theatrical career that both uh, that preceded and post, both preceded and postdated that that TV turn. Uh, it's gotten some attention for Linda Lavin's return to the stage, but it also is a really, I think for me, it's the kind of play I love the best, which is a play that is really rooted in a kind of, uh, it's by a young playwright, a person, uh, this uh, playwright who recently, only recently completed their MFA at Yale's, uh, uh, at Yale. And so this is one of their first major New York productions. They did have another production, but a really first major New York production 
And what I think I found most striking about it was that it really, it, it did the kind of thing I really love in contemporary theater, which allows the language to be just realistic enough to amplify and activate realist actors and all of their skills at sort of uh, the naturalistic uh, repertoire that activates so much connection between audiences and actors, but also spoke to theater actors' capacity to manage style and to manage abstraction and to manage uh, quick shifts and pivots in what the emotional realities were. Because I think the play's conceit is a very simple one. The play has five actors in it, each of whom are referenced by a number. It's sort of uh, the play is set in a sort of in a allegedly contemporary but also slightly distorted reality there is a, a sense of it's got a lot of contemporary features that we might immediately recognize at the same time there's sort of this sort of looming sense of disaster people are talking about these hovering birds that come down and snatch people away all the time and people are selling bird insurance so there's a kind of sense of the immediacy of the uh, threat of disaster and death everywhere. And so there's a kind of sense where it feels just like people are going to meet in a restaurant or seeing or putting up flyers on, on lampposts. So it feels very normal, but it also feels really distorted. And there's something about that that introduces a sense of, of tension and terror almost at the outset before we get a sense of what's going on. But the scenario of what's going on activates almost immediately where we see a phone call between uh, a young uh, young man and an older woman um, with the older woman having responded to an advertisement that they saw posted on a um, lamppost. And so they called the thing saying, and the, and the invitation was, um, I need to tell you something. I'll pay you $40 so I can practice telling some telling you something that I don't want to tell anybody. So a young young man is holding on to the secret and he pays, he's willing to pay this stranger. Now, of course, the stranger that calls is, as we might imagine in any situation, has, has their own quirks. In this case, the stranger, character number two, is played by Linda Lavin, and character number one is played by the simply extraordinary Daniel K. Isaac. And so Daniel K. Isaac is uh, the young man who has the secret and is trying to find a way to sort of practice telling the secret out, telling the secret. And... Um, and, and the character number two is played by Linda Lavin is the one who answers it. And so one of the things that really opens up is the difficulty of character number one telling what's what the secret is. And very quickly, it becomes clear that Daniel, that the Daniel K. Isaac character, character number one, is experiencing some kind of illness. And it's an illness that scares him that he doesn't know how to describe, but he's terrified of telling anyone in his life. There's sort of intimations that the uh, that the character has had um, a recent relationship that's gone away, perhaps a, and a sense that uh, a brother has also passed. And so there's a kind of a sense of, I'm not sure who's going to take care of me. There's a sort of vulnerability and that particular vulnerability that comes when you realize that you're ill and who's going to take care of me? Are the structures in place? How will I do this? And for whatever reason, this act this is the scenario that activates this odd relationship that becomes central to the play between character number one and character number two character number two is an older woman 
who is taking community theater uh, classes at a community college because she wants to be an actor. And indeed, she wants to audition for the role of Dorothy in an upcoming production of The Wizard of Oz. That becomes a recurring thread, as do a lot of Oz references, including the birds swooping down. There's a lot of things that come in that open up this question of why is The Wizard of Oz there? Not sure I know, but it's a motif that opens up this question of mystery, uh, the sense of estrangement from home. What does it take to get home? And what does it take to sort of activate one's potential to be brave enough to ask for help to get home. And so, uh, but it's a really quite extraordinary um, piece that opens up. And so these two main characters, Daniel K. Isaac and uh, and Linda Lavin's characters are the primary, primary point of interaction. And the crucial thing about their interaction is that it's transactional. Linda Lavin becomes a fierce caregiver. Linda, the Linda Lavin character becomes in some ways a fierce caregiver for character number one, but always with this sort of mechanism of that'll cost you. I'll need you to pay me this. Well, I'll do this, but you got to pay me this. And what is interesting about this aspect of this piece, especially as the character number one's uh, condition becomes increasingly more um, debilitating, uh, is this question of what are, as one interlocutor in the post-show discussion asked, how are we to, what are we to feel about the fact that character number two is always asking for money when they offer care to character number one? And that question, what are we to feel about that, is I think central to the play in that it asks us the question of what do we, um, what are we to make of the fact that it costs something? to care for someone else or to ask to be cared for someone else. It may cost money, it may cost other things, but this question of what are the costs and what is our society, is it set up to support those costs of time, of emotion, of, of, of material resources, all these kind of questions. So that's the abiding tension. And, and um, the other thing I will say about the way the play is written is the play is written, and this goes to some of the ways that it connected for me with the other plays I, I heard this year, that I saw and experienced and heard this week, is the play also includes a fifth, like there's five characters, characters one through five, one through one and two are the two primary relationships, the young man who's ill and the person who ends up in becoming involved as a transactional caregiver. Then there's uh, characters three and four who evolve through a variety of other roles um, from a sister to a acting teacher to a uh, somebody on the street to a waiter to all these different kinds of characters that these characters four and five play. Um, but then, uh, character five is, uh, is in some ways like a screen, a screenplay voiceover or an omniscient narrator in a novel, this sort of voice that comes over the loudspeakers where it is in some ways the interior monologue that is telling character number one, what's going on, which also tells us what's going on for character number one too. So what this device is of hearing this voice is we begin to sort of really be inside character number one's experience of, of debility. And I use that word specifically, um, and I'll pivot here because uh, I use that word specifically because this piece is really about, um, in a lot of ways, disability and debility. The fact that at any point, any of us can become disabled and, in a, and in some, indeed all of us are inevitably disabled at some point, because in some ways getting older is the experience of increasing debility and disability. And so, 
what we witness on stage, not so much what is said through the voiceover that we're hearing as the character inside character number one's head is we begin to see that character number one begins to have a difficulty, uh, difficulties, physical difficulties, um, difficulties in speaking and all of this. And all of this is staged in an incredibly elegant and beautiful and quite mysterious and magical way by Sam Pinkleton, because who is also a choreographer and a deeply intuitive emotion like director, especially around questions of care. Um, and what in Sam Pinkleton's collaboration with Daniel K. Isaac, what we see is this incredibly choreographic sense of vulnerability. Daniel K. Isaac is able to give a sense of this kind of the liquidity of a body and especially the liquidity of a body as it is beginning to sort of not work the way one expects it to. And that experience of like, why is my foot not landing the way I expect it to? That sense of sort of mysterious vulnerability. And then this is amplified in ways that I thought were just quite remarkable and extraordinary by the production's use um, and collaboration with um, uh, with a illusions designer, a, um, a designer, somebody who really sort of worked in the area of magic and illusions to sort of create particular effects for this, for the piece. Like there's this one moment in the, um, somewhere about halfway through this, halfway through it where, well, I guess like to be more precise about it, like almost immediately we begin to see as character number one's body ceases to work as he is accustomed to it working, we begin to see the sort of the motif of straw happen. Like this idea of straw sort of comes out of his sleeves or is sort of around him. Like there's this idea of he becomes increasingly not clear what's going on. Like his body is sort of becoming straw. And there's this one extraordinary moment when um, he begins to speak and all they can do is suddenly out of his mouth comes like what seems to be almost a skin, like the, the, the amount of a yarn that would be in a skein of yarn, like the one foot, like just incredible amount of straw just coming out of his mouth that is on stage in front of us straight there. And it's unclear how it's working or how it's coming. So it amplifies the sense of danger, the sense of mystery, the sense of marvel, and the sense of extraordinariness of a transforming body, uh, especially the extraordinariness of a body that is changing the way in which we understand how we live inside of it. And this question of what, and this goes into questions of his, of Daniel K. Isaac's character, the character number one, their limbs sort of going, their, their limb strength going, their ability to move, their ability to speak. And all of this amplifies a sense of doom and dread, but within a, a sense of marvelousness and this, I don't want to call it light so much, but the magic of the theatrical event allows us to stay present in it without wanting to look away. Because I do think that's one of the more extraordinary achievements of this piece is it really stages full center stage, a character who is dying. We do, the disease is never named. It could be all, it could be MS, it could be ALS, it could be um, AIDS, it could be any number of diseases. What we're seeing, the symptoms make no sense, but this character is almost center stage for the entirety of the play. And we are never, we never look away necessarily because of the way the theatrical apparatus is is designed to sort of fascinate us, but fascinate us with this sense of marvel and mystery and uncertainty. Not so much that we're delighted by the illusions, but they amplify our sense of, I can't look away, even as I don't know what I'm seeing and I'm feeling deeply sad and uncomfortable that this human is experiencing this. So it's a really quite extraordinary 85 minutes that ultimately culminates with a 
sort of the voice offstage entering the onstage reality as we begin to understand the character number one has left their body as we've come to see it. And we're not exactly sure what's going on, but it is opening up the sense of of metaphysical transition. And so that's, I think, the piece. And at the same point, we see character number two arriving to a new space and then carrying with her the voice of character number one in her head now. So this sense of we are not alone, even in our most vulnerable, and even when we feel our most isolated, there are ways that we can tap into wisdom beyond us. But it is, and that's where I think the piece is both deeply physical and deeply metaphysical in a way that I just found quite um marvelous and quite delightful and quite um, extraordinary. And I did appreciate the ways in which um, the play refused answering the questions. It refused answering, what are we to care about this transactional intimacy of caregiving? Instead, we're left to sit with the reality of that is the reality in which we live right now. The play refuses to answer, what are these birds swooping in? And as one of the actors in the post-show conversation noted, it's sort of like we're living in this, we're living in a time like 21, 22, that it's like, there's a lot of chaotic stuff going on in the world and we're just proceeding along. And in some ways, but that does increase a sense of dread and doom. And in some ways that is that sense of also that sense of debility that we live in living through the, the reverberations of a pandemic and this sort of sense of vulnerability about our own health, as we're also continuing to proceed on with our lives, this sort of sense of where, what, and what would happen if catastrophe, catastrophe struck. Is insurance enough? Uh, many of the jokes in the play acknowledge that insurance is a scam or not enough or these kinds of questions. And yet I do think the grace and the gift of the play, especially as directed by Pinkleton, allows us to um, sort of be present with all of that mystery, all of that uncertainty, all of that thing that is not individualized. These characters are not individualized. We don't know their names in many cases. We never hear character number one's name. What we know are some details about them, but as a result, they are specifically human, but they are also, this is, can happen to anybody. It will happen to us all. And there is a way in which I think that Noah Diaz's play allows the specificity of the experience to be present while also allowing it to be universal without erasing the humanity and without sort of anchoring the universality in a specific type of body. This, this is a multiracial, multi-aged uh, ensemble that are all switching out of different kinds of roles. And so there's a way in which the theatrical universe in which this piece is built um, really allows it to be universal without relying upon old habits of certain bodies being universal. I do think the fact that we have these four actors on stage who are all able-bodied, young, attractive uh, New York City actors alongside, admittedly, an iconic legend, Linda Lavin, but Linda Lavin is older. Like There's a moment in which Linda Lavin is rolling around in her, I guess she's in I'm, I'm guessing 80s. Um, I should have checked before I started recording, but she's rolling around the floor as part of this bonkers acting exercise scene. And when she gets up, I, you know, there was a moment when I, ha I looked to see, is she okay? How is she going to get up from the floor? And the bravery of this piece, the bravery of Linda Lavin, the specificity of Sam Pinkleton, is she is right at center and she gets up safely by herself on her own power, but with a very specific series of actions. She cannot leap to her feet the way some of the younger actors do, but she is able, you know, so there's a way in which by placing at center and using the theater as a space of, as a viewing space, not just a listening space, but a viewing space, allowing us to, and forcing us using the directorial devices to force us to keep looking at this body as it 
as it experiences debility by looking at a body, an older body maneuver physicality, by looking at those things, allowing us to be present with that and to feel the provocation of that without necessarily solving any of those problems. And that's where I think the provocation of the title, You Will Get Sick, is indeed um, one of the more compelling uh, gestures of the piece in that it's saying it is simply announcing that that is true. You will get sick. All of us humans, we will get sick in varying degrees at varying times with varying consequences of the resolution of that illness. But by sort of offering that as a provocation and also a promise and also a sort of sit with that, it's complicated. It's complicated to sit with the reality that you will get sick. That is, I think, the gift of this piece is that it invites us to sit with that, not solve it. But sit with that and to figure where the question of humanity, the where, where the question of care, um, what the question of, of acceptance and what about the metaphysics of physicality are all part of this. And the a really deft deployment of the theatrical apparatus was just such a marvel and such a, a brilliant way to support this really open ended provocation, this open ended query that Noah Diaz's play presents to us. And indeed, Noah Diaz is becoming one of the more interesting playwrights to sort of reckon with the reality of disability in every in everyday life. Um, and so I think it's a important play to watch, an important writer to watch. I think Daniel, I will now go anytime I see Daniel K. Isaac's name, I will watch the uh, his performance in this piece was simply astonishing. And indeed, it was a thrilling to watch a really deeply talented, charismatic on stage performer, young, handsome, all those things play this part without any with with incredible vulnerability. And he happens to be Asian American playing the center lead where Asian Americanness is not named, but it's also not disavowed. And there's a way in which that that also felt like the subtle radicality of this production and this piece. As I record this, as I record this, the um, I'm sure the actors are preparing to go to the theater for what will be their final performance of You Will Get Sick. And as I think about that, I am also hoping that the work in this chaotic season that is fall 2023, that the work of Sam Pinkleton as director, uh, the work of Noah Diaz as playwright, but especially the work of actors like Daniel K. Isaac and Linda Lavin, but also the work of designers like like Dots, who did the extraordinary, extraordinary scenic scenic effects and scenic work because there are just extraordinary ways that the set operates in the piece, but then also the work of Magic and Illusions by Skylar Fox. I'm hoping that all of them have left a little bit of an imprint because once the show goes away, it's sometimes tricky to sort of figure out what's going to happen next with it. I suspect this play will enter the op- uh, will enter into the regions. I'm hoping it will. I think it will be quite meaningful and valuable, especially for the ways in which it is open. There is nothing that says that the character of number two needs to be a an old Jewishish lady. It doesn't need to be that. The character can be any number of things. It just need the character can be all kinds of things. And so one of the the gifts of the way that this play is written is how open it is, but also how demanding it is. Because I do think that one of the gifts of the piece and really the piece, the thing that I'm going to be taking forward from it, the thing I really don't want to forget about what you will get sick is the title. The title, You Will Get Sick. Uh, The title, You Will Get Sick, is a provocation. 
It's a prompt. It's a challenge. It's also a simple statement of truth. And one of the gifts of the piece is the way it asks us to be present with that and asks us to be present with the fact that our bodies will fail. We will get sick. We will hit these spaces of vulnerability and uncertainty as as our lives proceed. We may get sick soon. We may get sick later. We are living through a period in history where everybody is vulnerable in different ways to getting sick and more people are seriously sick in different ways than we're ever experienced as a as a as a community as a human community and the gift of this production is it asks us to sit there and be present with it not to solve it not to judge it not to decide whether it's for good or for bad or who's to blame or what's the cause but to recognize the simple reality that this is true and to stay in that uncertainty and that is in some ways the way i think is so powerful about how this play marshaled the um, and indeed, so many of the plays this week I saw marshaled the power of theatricality to sort of take us to that space of marvel, of wonder, and that is in some ways so connected to why all of them felt so horrific. Right? They're all in this space of horror and all in this space of wonder and dread. But they're also in that space, which I think, if we go back to the Greeks and the idea of peripeteia and and catharsis and all this kind of stuff. It's often the shock and awe of witnessing what of coming to know. And it is horrifying. The horrifying discovery of things that we did not necessarily absorb. And theater has that capacity to hold us in an audience wrapped with attention as we are horrified by what we are seeing and also caught with marvel and wonder at the insight that comes from that encounter with the horror, right? That is sort of the elemental force of Western dramatic tradition. And each of these plays asks us to do that. You know, in some ways, the character arc of Scrooge, he is horrified by what the what the visitors show him from Marley through each of the Christmas ghosts. He is horrified by what they see. And the, the promise that the P, that Christmas Carol offers is what is he going to do with that horror? Will he have the opportunity to do something different, having been horrified by the witness that he's offering? I do think that that's, again, what I so marvel about, about Sam Pinkleton's direction of You Will Get Sick, is asking us to sit there and watch this extraordinary uh, collaboration among artists, the tight ensemble work of all the onstage performers, but also as they execute the illusions that amplify this sense of, I can't look away, but I have to, I don't want to see what I'm going to see, but I can't look away because it's so fascinating. In some ways, that's the apparatus of theater that works so wonderfully. And that is, I think, part of even going to thinking about what sex variants, the the piece that I started, the workshop piece I saw is like, how do we open up the, the horrors of the historic past? In this case, a text that actually captures ethnographic or interviews with LGBTQI folks, QIA folks, how do we sort of work through the horrors of what we're seeing in this, the horrors of their experience, but also the horrors of the language used to describe them in all of its sort of 1930s sexism, racism, homophobia, classism, xenophobia, all this kind of stuff. How do we manage that homophobia? How do we manage the horrors of that as we also go to the marvelousness of the lives that are being described as they're lived? And how might we use the apparatus of theater to hold the balance of the wonder, the marvel, the horror? but also the fascination that presenting this work on stage is. So I do think that that's sort of where I am in thinking about this week as a total, and indeed where I am thinking about how this experiment of offering 
of offering uh, sort of an audio diary of what my theater going stirred for me this week. And, you know, when I see these shows in random succession, and indeed, as I do this audio, uh, auto, audio diary, there may be times when TV or film sneak in too, but it is this question of what's on my mind, what's on my mind as I'm thinking through these things. And what's been on my mind is what are the pleasures of horror in the theater, which are distinct from the pleasures of horror in, say, novels or in film, because there is, I think, in the ple- in the space of horror, experience of horror in the theater is not as much about jump scare, though, though theater audiences do great jump scares. Um, it, it is deeply about the sense of sitting in the uncertainty as we also marvel at what that which is falling, unfolding before us. Because in the theater, we don't often see people trying to close their eyes because what the theater amplifies is our, our, our willingness, our obligation, our capacity to look, to look deeply and to stare. And when a theater artist like Sam Pinkleton, in this case, uh, at with You Will Get Sick, is chooses to sort of play with that and to allow that as an invitation in for us to hold with theatrical marvelousness, the uncertainty of this dread of what's going on with this guy that we like a lot, um, it's a gift and it's a gift that is different the way that I, I would, I, I would posit the gift operates somewhat differently in, uh, in theater than it might in t- in film or a TV or, or, or novels. So, so again, um, this is the experiment. This is the experiment I'll be doing for the next few weeks. I'm going to make a commitment at least for the next couple months to try to do this semi-regularly. See if it's some, if, see if it's a practice that helps me put these buzzing thoughts someplace that might be of use to some others, because I should confess that one of the reasons why I do feel so compelled in the midst of the end of a semester, in the midst of my priorities on other writing projects, the reason I feel like I really must do some work around building this podcast in this way is because I feel like um, we've seen recently Recently, the crisis in, the, in uh, journalistic theatrical criticism hit different a different head, and I feel that there's a problem that when we don't have good reviews or ample reviews or that kind of we when we don't have that kind of documentation, it um, things disappear. We don't get records of what which well, that which has happened, and as a historian, um, that that concerns me. As an advocate, that concerns me. But it also has put a sort of particular pressure on me of like, what is it that I can do? I do see a lot of shows. What are the ways I can contribute into leaving a trace for some of these shows? And that's where it's not going to be something I'm going to be writing about. So what are the other mechanisms I can do? As you can tell, you just pull my string and I can talk. So this is part of what I am experimenting with is in this audio diary. And so if nobody, if nobody listens, part of what I'm hoping this experiment will do is leave some documentary trace for some of this extraordinary theater work that I do have the gift, blessing, and good fortune to have an encounter on a fairly regular basis. So um, welcome to the experiment. We'll see how it goes. And it'll be janky. It'll be jerky. It'll be have moments of epiphany. It'll have moments of who knows. But once again, it's part of how do we use the technical apparatuses available to us to sort of further the goals we wish. And in this case, I just want there to be some acknowledgments for some of the extraordinary theater work that these artists are doing that are outside of the conventions of the time bound uh, journalistic uh, theatrical review. what are the other ways that we can amplify the conversation? And this is my own small part, my own small experiment. And I don't know that anybody's going to listen, but it also gets this stuff out of my head and puts it somewhere so it doesn't just disappear. Because as we know, theater goes, comes and goes and it goes away. And sometimes it's hard to remember what we saw. 
And that's sort of definitely something I'm feeling, especially as my theater going is ramping up once again. So thanks for joining me in the experiment. This was the first go. We'll see how it evolves. We'll see what how the conventions fall into place. But in the meantime, if you're listening, I appreciate you. And um, here we go. Stinky Lulu Says is an independent project of Stinky Lulu Productions recorded in Princeton, New Jersey, or the unceded ancestral land of the Lenny Lenape. Stinky Lulu Says began in the summer of 2016 with a cycle of six episodes that are allegedly available on SoundCloud. The podcast then lay dormant for several years until the spring of 2020 and the early days of the COVID-19 shutdown, which inspired a six-episode reboot, and that's when Stinky Lulu Says returned, both as a way to respond to the unfolding crises and also as a teaching resource for courses I would teach over the next two years. First came 21st Century Latinx Drama, then uh, the podcast returned for another dozen or so episodes in the fall of 2020 as a part of a different course, Theater and Society Now, followed by another 11 episodes, um, also in support of that course as I offered it again. Cycle 5 offered a halting experiment with two episodes, one each in the early summer of 2021 and 2022. And now, Cycle 6, which aims to start the new year of 2023 by returning to the podcast roots as a semi-regular theater-going audio diary. Now, you can always have your say about what Stinky Lulu says by letting me know through the usual channels. You can usually find me easily on Twitter and Instagram at Stinky Lulu. S-T-I-N-K-Y-L-U-L-U. You can also always email me via my Princeton address or at stinkylulu at gmail.com. And don't forget to subscribe to my hashtag theaterclick newsletter at Substack. For For a link to the newsletter's archive and to other resources, look for the Profe Herrera tab on my Princeton University Scholar page or at the link tree on either my uh, Twitter or Instagram. My Princeton University Scholar page can be found at scholar.princeton.edu slash bherrera. So, until next time, as you do what you can to take care of yourself and your beloveds in this evolvingly uncertain time, as we stay fierce in both our artistry and our advocacy, I invite you to join me and my beliefs that so long as we find a way to keep listening to each other, we together can grow forward, even through this whatever this is. At least, that's what Stinky Lulu says. <laughs>